Chancellor, last Chancellor, a Viklin is a Queen Ushla. And in Gate weakest as the Ocliasa, the Sokohoire, and Firkin Polcher, a Wurmelson, either Winter Dokasak and Quichot and Dan, a Gwilich and Gwilich Gomorra, and made the Gurtu, Agus and Jangaval, a Luatu, either Winter Neherin, is Winter Nua Helen, is Gwimrock Rag, Fanakter, the Winter, its son the Imis, its son the Tolichir, is Berbank. May I say, Vice Chancellor, thank you for your kind introduction this evening. And I just have said in my own language, I represented for a great number of years the largest number of those who spoke the Irish language as their first language in Galway West, Kaliutir, and in the Iron Islands. <coughs> and indeed, I do recall very clearly <coughs> what my predecessor, Raymond de Valera, said when he came here. And today, I have to tell you, our work continues in promoting the use of the Irish language, which is used in the home of the president uh, almost every day. I do thank you for the warmth and depth of the invitation and welcome uh, to the land of which your people were the first settlers and which the people the first arrivals, the people, their land, both in terms of the spiritual significance of it and both in terms also of the way in which you are negotiating the present and the future in full consciousness of the rich traditions that New Zealand has the great, great advantage of sharing. It is an honor to address uh, this august institution and to see so many uh, in uh, university students and staff, and particularly to university, which has contributed so much and is continuing to, conti to contribute so much to the social, cultural, and intellectual life of New Zealand. <coughs> And by the way, before I say anything, as my publisher would want to say, my last book last year, When Ideas Matter, is in your bookshops. As a former university teacher, I did indeed teach sociology and political science. It is a very great pleasure at any time to return uh, to university. Universities are enormously important as communities of ideas, and communities of scholarship. And it's a very particular pleasure to have been asked to address a university from which one of the great literary movements of New Zealand emerged. It had as its image, an image that many literary revivals and Renaissance movements shared. Indeed, it's an image that sits on top of a monument outside the gate of Aurasanutra on the home of the President of Ireland. I refer to the publication of that short-lived but seminal literary journal, Phoenix, in whose pages were first published the words of Alan Cornell, Rex Fairburn, Ronald Mason, and Charles Brash, among others. And they used words that were both ambitious and inclusive, and words that must surely ring from the 1930s, the difficult 1930s, through to the decades of today. They wrote as manifesto for their journal, we are hungry for the words that shall allow us these islands and ourselves. That will show us and that shall give us a home in thought. <coughs> a home in thought. I recall, re I recall reflecting on these powerful words. Their demand, as they are, for a public culture and a space for culture. As I prepared for my very first visit to New Zealand 
1999. We are hungry for the words that shall show us these islands and ourselves, and shall give us a home in thought. They were very relevant then, because as a former minister for arts, culture, and the Geltacht in Ireland, and president of the Council of Culture Ministers of the European Union in 1996, during the Irish presidency of the European Union, I had been very engaged in matters of cultural policy, and I had been invited to address a symposium organised by the Broadcasting Commission and the Institute of Public Policy Studies in Wellington to speak on the importance of creativity, as we say in Irish, and in particular, the future of public service broadcasting. On that occasion, I spoke, based on my experiences in Ireland, of the crucial importance and the potential of public broadcasting as invitation to the citizen to experience the timeless, the universal, the unimagined. Remember Lord Reed's phrase, a nation talking to itself. And I thought as providing a rich source of creativity, beginning to be abused as a term at the time, I spoke too of the dangers of what was then emerging and indeed strengthening as a perspective, which saw broadcasting as something lesser, as merely a production space for a commodified and homogenized entertainment. I reminded my audience on that occasion of the title of Raymond Williams' last great public lecture, Be the Arrow, Not the Target, with its powerful advocacy for active participatory culture as an alternative to the passive consumption of homogenized product, the outcome often of monopolized production and indeed distorted distribution practices. So it is a privilege for me to return to this great country now, Marutrani Heren as President of Ireland, and I am grateful for the invitation to address you this afternoon. I was fascinated to learn of the early influence of Irish migrants, as we have just heard. The influence of Irish migrants, indeed, on the development of this university itself. Its establishment in 1882 owed much to the efforts of George Morris O'Rourke, the son of an Irish Anglican parson from County Galway, who would go on to become Speaker of the House of Representatives and Chairman of the Council of this university. As is the case, with many of the Antipodian universities, migrant Irish scholars exerted a significant intellectual influence in those early years. If I were, as a former teacher of sociology, to single out one, it would be Hutchison Macaulay Posnick, author of what is considered by many as one of the foundational texts in the sociology of literature. He was like many Irish lawyers of his generation, schooled in the comparative jurisprudence of Henry Maine, a method which he extended to the study of literature and political economy. His first work, The Historical Method in Ethics, Jurisprudence and Political Economy, encompassed a critique of the classical political economy of his day, a matter which remains of enduring interest to me. Indeed, I suggest to you, students in particular, to ask the question where in what journal today would you find all those terms sitting in the same title? The historical method in ethics, jurisprudence, and political economy. 
The influence of Irish scholars and politicians, of course, is but one small strand of a long and enduring connection between New Zealand and Ireland. In the decade prior and immediately following the Treaty of Waitangi, many of the Irish who came to these shores were migrants, sometimes escaped or time-expired convicts from the Peelan colonies across the Tasman, seeking to make, and oft, very often in this city, a new life in the rough and tumble trades of whaling, sealing and timber cutting. It was from such a milieu, for example, that the Sydney-born Irish father of the Maori politician and government minister, James Carroll, emerged. Others were colonial administrators and soldiers who came to serve here during the New Zealand wars. The best known, perhaps, is the Irish of the Irish administrators, maybe William Hobson, the naval commander from County Waterford and first governor of New Zealand, who gave this city its name and drafted the Treaty of Waitangi. In those early years, the pattern of Irish settlement was concentrated here on the North Island rather than the South Island, which was then developing according to the template of that champion of what was called systemic colonisation, Edward Gibbon Wakefield. For despite the involvement of John Robert Godley and James Edward Fitzgerald, both Anglo-Irish colonial enthusiasts, the enterprise of the New Zealand Company had very few places for Irish migrants or Irish colonial intellectuals. It was the Otago Gold Rush of 1861 that brought the first large influx of Irish migrants, miners, who had first sought their fortune in Ballarat and Bendigo, where alluvial deposits were now exhausted. And 49ers too came from across the Pacific Ocean, where gold fever had slowly given way to the imposition of the rule of law by the new state of California. I recall as a sociologist teaching the words of Josiah Strong about the discord which they address. God created man in a garden, the city is the result of the fall. The impact of such a wave is clearly visible when one compares the census return. In 1861, on the cusp of discoveries at the, at the Tuapika and Waipori fields, the Irish-born population numbered 8,831. Just three years later, there were 20,317 Irish-born living in New Zealand the Irish population in New Zealand had doubled. It would be inappropriate for me also to ignore a fundamental fact for that year. That is the year when there was a devastating loss in the Maori population. And it is then the great gap between settlers and Maori begins to emerge in its darkest form. As Angela McCarthy, Jock Phillips and Terry Heron have shown in their research, new arrivals from Ireland followed through what scholars of migration have referred to as a process of chain migration. That is one person following another uh, from families and from friendship networks. As Irish people in New Zealand persuaded and through nomination schemes established by the provinces of the young colony, secured the subsidized passage of their friends and family members. This process accelerated rapidly in the 1870s under the influence of the ambitious assisted passage scheme championed by Jules Vogel. It is at this stage as well there is a specific request for 1,300 females to head to this uh, city here. 
This vast project of the early entrepreneurial state dramatically expanded the possibility for nomination and extended the potential of direct recruitment of new colonists from Ireland, which had, hither which had hitherto been an unexplored possibility. <coughs> In some provinces still beholden to the legacies of colonial companies, such as the Canterbury Association. Indeed, it was George Morris O'Rourke, who as Minister for Immigration, ensured an increase in the number of recruiting agencies dispatched to Ireland. The Irish-born population then peaked at 51,406 on the cusp of the Long Depression in 1886. It would slowly decline thereafter, as those with Irish ancestors gradually integrated in what would become Pakeha society. The new Irish arrivals of the 1860s and 70s were predominantly small farmers and rural labourers, men and women who had grown up in an agrarian society, as the historian Donald Atkinson has noted. They also, for example, shifted the concentration of the Irish presence to the South Island, to Canterbury, where Irish men fulfilled the same role as they would in the United States, Irish navvies building the roads, bridges and railways of the rapidly expanding province, and where Irish women were often engaged as domestic servants. On the west coast, towns like Hokitika, a booming gold rush town, developed for a time a distinctive Irish identity, which indeed pubs and taverns named after familiar Irish heroes and patriots. The Irish arrivals participated too, along with other migrants who came to this land, in the creation of what really was a laboratory of social experiment, for which the new democracy of New Zealand would become noted. If there was a distinctive Irish contribution to a country famed for its progressive legislation, it was perhaps, I suggest, a certain sense of recoil, a recoil from an, and an ambition to transcend what was perceived by them to be oppressive, an oppressive colonial mindset, inappropriate for the new setting in which they found themselves. This was deeply understandable, given the Irish experience of the effects of oppression and injustice and exclusion, exclusion from all opportunities that were foreclosed by cultural assumptions, among other measures, as to their cultural assumptions as to their inferiority, exclusion on religious grounds, and an unjust political economy. They were, however, perhaps moved too by an impulse to imagine a new world that could be created with freer institutional possibilities in the southern oceans. In the imperial world of the 19th century, this was demonstrated by an unusual parallel, and indeed maybe it is a contradiction, as the matter of land reform and land redistribution in New Zealand became inextricably linked in the eyes of the colonists with the importance of learning from the failures of landlordism in Ireland. 8,000 main landlords with several agents in between, governing a huge state of poverty in which a million people would die uh, while food was being exported and two million forced into exile. A people really submitted to the dictates of a hegemonic economic theory, which was actually being debated, sometimes referred to, indeed, as an act of God. Indeed, one distinguished 
economist, one, the founder of one of the Australian universities, suggested that the Irish people were dying because they didn't understand economics. In 1881, Robert Stoush, a Scottish immigrant born on the Shetland Islands and a future premier, published an interesting uh, pamphlet, The Irish Question and Its Lessons for Colonists, advocating the use of the then novel land tax as a mechanism to provide land to the small proprietor and prevent New Zealand from becoming an antipodean replica of the Irish social structure. As I have said, a country of great landed estates, numerous toiling tenant farmers, and an expanding, grinding poverty that would have devastating consequences. In the same year, 1881, John Balance, the eldest son of an Irish tenant farmer and future premier, attended a mass meeting in Wellington in support of the Irish National Land League, which had been established in Ireland three years earlier in County Mayo, 1979. In the words of its founding resolutions, it was aimed at the obtaining of the ownership of the soil by the occupiers. When the leader of the Irish National Lang League, Michael Davitt, some years later, toured New Zealand in 1896, he found here a reflection of what he felt were the most advanced ideas of his age, many of which he had advocated in Ireland. A progressive land tax, land redistribution, a determination to ensure that older people were insured an income in old age, a faith in the pursuit of the public good, and a combination of a definition of welfare that would include those who worked on the land and those who worked in the cities and the factories. He was, in fact, advocating legislation to ensure that labour, for example, secured a fairer share of the proceeds of growth. And he saw in this a recognition and vindication of a public world that he saw as possible, uniting the efforts, as I have said, of land and labour. He attributed these policies he saw <coughs> as successful to the influence of Balance and his lieutenant, John Mackenzie, who of course had witnessed the Highland clearances as a young boy. And this is how David wrote, an Irish Premier of New Zealand, aided chiefly by a Celtic Highlander, both of whom knew something of Irish and Scottish landlordism, instrumental a few years ago in moulding the present land laws of the colony on the broad, just and rational principle of the land of a country for the people of the country and not for any class. We are reminded by such words that it was impossible to ignore the role that the clearances, the enclosures, had in creating the huge numbers of vagrants whose crimes would be used to fill the colonies with those transported in humiliating and degrading conditions. And as to dispossession in the country he was visiting, Michael David would also write of the Maori landleaguers and of Te Fiti and of how they, as he put it, were beaten by overwhelming forces but the principle underlying their brave struggle was not crushed. If Ireland demonstrated to New Zealanders then an imposed destiny that was to be averted for Irish observers such as David, New Zealand in its turn showed by its willingness to experiment, to engage in quite new forms of thought and action, and to challenge and overturn 
the failing orthodoxies of the old world, and it was thus indicating, he thought, an alternative pathway to the future. And indeed, according parity of esteem, going beyond simply recognizing differences of culture, doing that, echoing that extra mile, that is a real achievement to be celebrated in the contemporary political space. Such values and impulses are surely needed too, now more than ever, for we need at global, national and international level a morally informed sense of the importance of human dignity, a scholarship that is able to absorb the impulses of the human street and the human spirit, that is able to craft alternative theoretical and policy models that can integrate a moral intent in ethics, ecology and economics. Good scholarship is inclusive scholarship. And I suggest that we need to reframe, for example, economics as political economy in such a fashion as will generate responsibility, as will allow transparent participatory policy formation and give us the capacity to reconnect with our publics and their best ethical intent. There is much that we in Ireland can continue to learn from New Zealand, like David, and perhaps much we may learn anew and rediscover together as we face the great challenges of coming decades from which neither of us must shirk our responsibilities. The urgency for just and sustainable development, the necessity to address the causes and consequences of climate change, the prevention and resolution of conflicts, both ancient and new, the imperative to welcome those fleeing war, persecution and famine, the ever-present threat of nuclear weapons and the growing inequalities in wealth income and opportunity, and their contemporary threat to social cohesion in so many parts of the world. For citizens of Ireland and citizens of New Zealand, given our shared characteristics and what, as I've suggested, are our shared values, I believe there is so much we can conti continue to achieve together. We are both small countries in terms of population, but population countries who value our democratic traditions and who seek to be authentic in our commitment to international institutions, a commitment expressed best, perhaps, by our shared abhorrence of the threat posed by nuclear weapons. It was the Irish representative at the General Assembly of the United Nations who first proposed in 1959 a resolution that would lead to the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, which has been from 1968 up to this year, the primary international legal instrument designed to prevent the dissemination of nuclear weapons and to achieve their disarmament. <coughs> the virtues required for this achievement were certainly tact, tenacity, and a quiet and stubborn persistence. And as we look forward, what a great gift to humanity and to present and future generations it would be if, as was originally committed, a reduction in nuclear missiles and their eventual elimination was achieved for humanity. New Zealanders can be proud, too, of those virtues I have mentioned as they recall a steadfast and courageous of a kind 
that were required to refuse the presence of the USS Buchanan and secure New Zealand's status as a nuclear-free nation. Namely, courage, bravery, and in the face of the oblique and sometimes open hostility of the two nuclear-armed states of the day. Fortitude was needed, and it was shown. And fortitude is surely the word that comes to mind when one thinks and recalls the shocking bombing in July 1985 of the Rainbow Warrior, not far from here in Auckland Harbour. I think that many small nations in the face of such intimidation might have sought some kind of discreet compromise. It is rare in international relations to find what was an inspiring display of moral clarity. In June of this year, our two countries, in cooperation again with many others, co-sponsored the General Assembly Resolution, mandating the convention of a new United Nations conference to negotiate a new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. This treaty, adopted in June and open for formal signature last month, prohibits the development, testing, production, stockpiling, stationing, transfer, use and threat of use of nuclear weapons. It represents the most widespread acceptance of the total threat to humanity posed by nuclear weapons. Some have decried this recent treaty, signed by so many members of the United Nations, as being without merit, I quote. They have suggested that it lacks force because it does not carry the approval of those who insist on continuing to possess nuclear weapons. Now let us be very clear what these critics are suggesting. It is no more and no less than claiming a right, the right to hold what is a veto for the existing nuclear armed states on policy making in this area. Such a view simply echoes what is already an abuse of veto-holding permanent members of the Security Council of the United Nations. Our mutual faith and trust in multilateral institutions, Ireland and New Zealand, and our co the cooperation between nation-states finds expression to, in our long-standing commitment as well to the contribution of personnel to United Nations peacekeeping activities. Indeed, may I suggest that the principles that have underpinned peacekeeping for six decades the requirement for consent of the main parties to the conflict to implement the United Nations mandate without fear or favour, and the non-use of force except in self-defence, and defence of the mandate are more apposite to the sensibility of smaller nations such as ours. Then as to some current challenges, many of which we share and will share, our two island nations have been endowed by nature with a temperate climate, enabling a kind of pastoral agriculture that is to some degree a product of past dependency, reflecting our history as suppliers of primary products, in our case, to Britain. The entry of Britain and Ireland into the European Economic Community with its common agriculture policy was a significant change for both of us, but with differing consequences. The structure and success of our agricultural industries brings with it, of course, a unique challenge for both our countries in the battle against climate change. Agriculture accounts for nearly a third of Ireland's greenhouse gas emissions, and I understand somewhat more here in New Zealand, which makes both of us outliers when compared to the other industrialised countries who participated 
in the first commitment period under the Kyoto Protocol of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. We have both adopted emissions trading schemes as a policy measure to reduce fossil fuel emissions. These schemes exclude the emissions generated by pastoral farming, which due to our unique emissions profile will require distinctive, novel, and sometimes difficult policy measures to be directed to dairy and beef farming, even as the temptation is now to increase our national herds to meet rising world demand. We should not and must not underestimate the depth or nature of this task. The recalibration of our agricultural industry to meet obligations we have accepted by international treaty is an obligation we must and which I believe we can meet. We can enlist the benefits of science and technology but it will also require being resolute in the tough decisions we may need to take and for which we must educate our publics. The agreement signed at the Paris Climate Conference in December 2015 was an enormous achievement, representing an important moral milestone, as imperfect as it may be in recognising the demands of climate justice and what is the imperative for survival for so many people in this century particularly in the developing world. The decarbonisation of our societies demanded by the pledge to pursue efforts to limit the global temperature increase to one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels will not be easy, nor can it be made without sacrifice. It will require the mobilisation of all members of our society engaged in the production, distribution, consumption and exchange of agricultural products to ensure that our countries can contribute to the effort truly required under the Paris Climate Accord. Yes, it will require new ideas, skills and methods, the opening of new frontiers of science and technology, a renewed commitment to the exchange of technical expertise, and may I suggest the recollection too of much of the wisdom of ancient methods, balances and symmetries of ecological management of ancient societies. The agreement of the Sustainable Development Goals in New York in September of 2015 constitutes what is the potential to be as important an achievement as the Paris Climate Accord. Over 193 states resolved to end poverty and hunger, combat inequalities in economic increment opportunity, to build peaceful, just and inclusive societies and to create conditions for a shared prosperity. We have used this language before, but as we face 2050, with 24% of the young people under 21 years of age that will be on the continent of Africa, 40% of the young people under 21, 24% of the total population of the planet, can we face what is really a great opportunity with our existing models of economic development? The answer, of course, is no. And therefore, we should consider in universities like this, as I have said in other universities, how we can enable the, the benefits and consequences of science and technology to leap over borders, not wait, if you like, to be the tail end of investment from existing structures <coughs> internationally, locate themselves in the continent of expanding population, and create new possibilities. We must not, I believe, 
be dislodged or dissuaded from these objectives that I have mentioned, no matter how powerful, that seek to eschew the co global common good in the service of narrow sectional interests. There will always be those who will make the case for what they regard as the tyranny of the contemporary sectional interests that will defeat, if you like, the longer-term common goals. Tomorrow, I will have the great honour, too, of vis to visit the Waitangi Treaty Grounds. And I could not help but be put in mind of our own treaty to the, to the Good Friday Agreement in Ireland, the cornerstone of a peace process which demands our continual attention in Northern Ireland. In both cases, it is when we see these treaties as living treaties, as processes towards the achievement of a shared dignity of recognised differences and belief in the possibilities of the future, that we can in fact see what they can deliver most for us. The suggestion that indivisibility may not be the sole defining characteristic of sovereignty imagined by Thomas Hobbes and Jean Baudin, but that sovereignty may be instead a matter of perpetual renegotiation and debate, something shared, carried out in a democratic, respectful and inclusive spirit is both profound and liberating, especially when it is imagined in practice. I've spoken in other places of the, the necessary courtesies of discourse, the complex and intricate relationships between peoples embodied in these respective agreements that I've mentioned. They require a constant commitment to ensure that they remain living documents capable of achieving the full promise of their possibilities. Both our nations are small open economies, highly open to world markets, yet also because of that very openness vulnerable to changes in international commodity prices, the structure of global value chains, and the sudden shifts and shocks to capital and financial flows. The forms of both capital and the nature of their flows have changed radically in the recent decades of deregulation. They have created what I suggest is a dystopia. I also have found in recent years been speaking on the issues of indigeneity. And nowhere have I seen a more blatant disregard for international law than on the part of certain corporations who have said to indigenous communities, defending themselves against the poison in their water, we will fight this case until hell freezes over and then on the ice. I have seen, in fact, where... <laughs> in countries like Ecuador, uh, peasant communities have been faced with an army of lawyers, themselves remember products of universities, who have in fact said that they will follow such a set of practices. Defeating, this is what I mean by what I have said earlier, by restoring a moral context to these subjects, which some of us have had the privilege of teaching. The economic forces I refer to are not natural phenomena and neither are they inevitabilities. They are the product of negotiated institutional design and public policy. And concerted action by states acting in cooperation with each other can, as they have in the past, 
constrain, control, and bind such forces in the service of the common good. But it requires regulation. It is in the capital flows that are outside regulation, that are not and never were available for productive use, that the greatest uncertainties in global conditions for economies large and small are so. As we have learned in Ireland, where our productive economy stayed strong in 2007 to 12, but the speculative consequences were had to be visited on our people. The economics of the future, it will, I believe, inevitably deal with the challenges of building and securing social cohesion. More equal societies, as one study after another shows, in every part of the world, more equal societies are healthier societies. Societies with deep inequalities are neither viable in terms of a stable, cohesive citizenship, nor are they healthy societies. Wild capital can yield short-term benefits for the few, but be destructive for the many. And the forms of capital which prevail within an economy, they're not the same as each other in terms of their consequences in any part of the globe. We need then to privilege productive capital flows that lead to investment strategies that are socially accountable, job-creating, sustainable. And this requires allowing economies and the societies which they serve to level up. And may I repeat, to, we must reject the suggestion that there is anything inevitable about the practices of any dominating hegemon in terms of international trade. This has been manifested most recently in the creation of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, to which New Zealand has already subscribed and of which Ireland is now a member. If these measures are to be at their best, such institutions must channel flows of capital that will enhance the long-run economic growth potential of developing countries and finance sustainable and sustained development. And yet in this, the 10th year since the global financial crisis, the broader international financial architecture has yielded only most painfully and gradually to change. We should question whether the institutions charged with regulating global flows of capital and finance have sufficient resources, the appropriate capacity, and most importantly, the agreed mandate that is necessary to achieve the economic and social objectives to which we are committed. There have been small, revelatory, but welcome changes in the advices offered by the International Monetary Fund on matters of fiscal policy and the control of movements of capital. And the report of the Commission on Global Poverty, established by the World Bank, which recommended broadening the concept of poverty to include non-monetary measures of deprivation, all welcome. But we must ask, as many in the global street are ever more vociferously are now asking, and most painfully experiencing as to whether some of the ideas which led to the global financial crisis still underpin global policy. Those who still believe that private financial markets will allocate resources to their best, most efficient use and must be allowed to do so without regulation, they have not gone away. And those that serve them are back on bonuses and the universities that are producing the rationalization for such bonuses are still in business. I think taking into account... <laughs> taking into account the necessity 
for sustainable and just development. Me we well ask, on behalf of whose and which interests do they speak and act, these international institutions? May I suggest that the great measures before us in the coming decade cannot be met with the ideas or assumptions of what are now failing. Failed paradigms of a less than democratic, often authoritarian, frequently patriarchal past. Our new challenges in new circumstances must be addressed drawing on the best of the new morally engaged scholarship that values social cohesion. And this is something we must pursue collectively at a global level with the same vigor and spirit with which our two countries have addressed the threat of a nuclear Armageddon. Can we in these difficult times, I ask, summon again the same openness, admiration for new ideas and willingness to break with old orthodoxies that Michael Davitt noted here in this country a century ago? Can we bring the same determination to share, to debate, to contest, and to constantly renegotiate sovereignty in a democratic manner shown by the peoples of Ireland and New Zealand have shown in these recent years? Can we bring the same moral clarity and ethical vision, the same courage and fortitude, the same willingness to confront unaccountable power that has been shown by the peoples of this country in declaring and enforcing a nuclear free zone? Can we bring this freshness of thought to matters economic internationally? I ask this question of both of our peoples. How we answer such questions will determine whether we can confront and overcome the challenges of a new century. It is essential in all of this that we retain our optimism. The necessary courtesies of ethical discourse, I suggest, our will, but a good beginning might be to combine our efforts in achieving for our peoples what is little less than a new literacy on economic and fiscal matters. And all of this brings me back to that first paper in New Zealand in 1999, which was to a conference debating how we might, by defending public service broadcasting, secure and deepen the public word. That struggle continues in new conditions. And I suggest that we must not merely hope, we must imagine, we must change, and we must achieve. Thank you so much for listening.